Recently, uh, Time magazine had an article on the 25 most influential marriages of all time. At least they were the most influential in the mind of whoever wrote the article. And I have to say I was a bit surprised at some of the marriages that were left out. For example, Porsche and Bex didn't make it. But they decided Jay-Z and Beyonce were worth a mention. It seems like a bit of American bias to me. There were some stage and screen marriages included. Romeo and Juliet, Marge and Homer Simpson. Adam and Eve did make it on the list. They were first on the list. There was also Bill and Hillary Clinton, Bill and Melinda Gates, and Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Influential marriages. But nowhere on that list of 25 did I find the two marriages we are going to see in the final chapters of Revelation. And yet both of the marriages we are going to see are way more significant than any celebrity or royal marriage. In weeks to come, we're going to be showing the marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the church. A marriage made in heaven. But before that, Revelation shows us a marriage made in hell. Actually, it's not a marriage in any normal sense of the word. But it is a partnership of evil. And it has significant influence. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1245, or in the large print, 1931. Revelation 17. John writes, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, 
which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hit the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is God's word. We've spent many weeks by now in the book of Revelation And one of the characteristics of this book is that it tends to introduce pictures or themes briefly with very little explanation, then returns to them later with more explanation. And that is certainly the case with Babylon. Back in chapter 14, we heard an angel announcing, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. But Babylon's fall wasn't described at that stage. Then last week, as John watched the seven angels pour out the seven bowls of God's final wrath, we read, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And now, in the visions John sees, we're going to zoom in on Babylon's fall. It's been mentioned before in passing several times, but now it becomes the main focus for a while. It will be the focus of chapter 18 too, which we'll look at next week. So what we're seeing here is not something that happens after the final bowls of wrath. It's a closer look of what goes on during the bowls of wrath. 
But this closer look begins by describing a woman in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. As far as the Bible is concerned, prostitutes look and sound great, but they lead you to death. That's the picture the Bible gives us. So, for example, the book of Proverbs describes a woman dressed like a prostitute who meets a young man in the street. And we're told, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Prostitutes lure people to death. And this prostitute in Revelation 17 sits, we're told, by many waters. We don't have to guess what that means because we're told down in verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So we're being told this great prostitute does not limit her work to one time and place. She's active in many times and places. And verse 2 tells us she works with all levels of society. She offers herself to kings and everybody else, the inhabitants of the earth. And involvement with this prostitute makes you drunk. The wine of her adulteries makes you less and less able to think clearly, less able to break away from her. That's how the angel introduces this great prostitute. But John hasn't actually seen her yet. And before he does see her, verse 3 says, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert or a wilderness. We've seen before that the wilderness has a double significance in scripture. On one hand, it's the place where God provides for his people. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. During those years in the wilderness, God fed them there with manna. He led them to springs of water in the desert. But the desert is also a place of testing and temptation. Think of Jesus. Mark tells us that right after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. So the wilderness is a place where God provides for his people. It's also the place where his people face great temptation. And it symbolizes where we are today. We're like Israel. We're still on our way to the promised land. But our promised land isn't Canaan. It's the new heaven and earth. And so this present world has the same two-edged reality the desert had for Israel and for Jesus. 
God promises to meet us here in the desert and walk with us and refresh us and provide all that we need. But we will also face the other reality of life in the wilderness. We are going to face great temptation. We are going to be tempted to leave the God who takes care of us and provides for us. That's why John is taken to the wilderness to see this vision. He's going to see the temptations that come to us day to day in this world. And having arrived in the wilderness, he goes on to say in verse 3, There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. That could be translated, I marveled. Or, I was awestruck. John sees the beast and his woman. And it's a marvelous sight. We'll think in a moment about how exactly John is marveling at what he sees. Is he marveling in fear? Or in admiration? Or both? But first, notice what he sees. The woman is not alone. She's sitting on a scarlet beast. And this is certainly the same beast we met back in chapter 13. He's described in exactly the same way. So this is Satan's representative. He comes with Satan's daunting strength to oppress and to crush And the beast is incarnated in various rulers and empires throughout history who violently oppose God and his people. We'll hear more about the beast later in the passage. But riding on his back is this woman. In other words, she's in very close relationship with him. She works in partnership with him. And when the woman's appearance is finally described for us, she is impressive. Dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. On one level, it's pretty obvious what the woman offers. Wealth and luxury. But we need to be aware of something else. This description combines parts of the description of the high priest's uniform in the Old Testament. And parts of the description of the bride of the Lamb at the end of Revelation. What's the significance of that? Well, it tells us this woman doesn't only offer wealth and luxury. She offers to satisfy our longings for spiritual fulfillment too. She claims to be able to duplicate the access to God offered by the Old Testament high priest. 
and the enjoyment of God experienced by those purchased by the blood of the Lamb. So what does this woman represent? She is everything in our culture that calls out to us, saying, I'll fulfill you. I'll satisfy you. I'll enlighten you. I'll save you. I'll give you peace and prosperity. This woman is wealth that says everything can be bought if you just have enough in your wallet. She's man-made religion that says here's how you can climb up to God by your own achievement. She's godless philosophy that says you are God. You can overcome anything by your own power. She's all the opportunities that we have for thrills and experiences. She's high culture that says, if you follow me, you'll be in the inside. You'll be a cut above the rest. She's low culture that says, just follow your appetites. Whatever they are, feed your lusts. This woman is anything and everything that offers to do what only the living God can do. Anything and everything that lures us away from seeking our satisfaction and salvation and security in him. And she's very, very attractive. Nobody would go after her if she looked ugly and destructive. The kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth flock to her because she looks great. All that she offers looks great. That's what prostitutes do. They dress to impress and turn heads to make us stop and admire. But John also gets a look inside the golden cup that's in her hand. And it turns out, behind all the great promises, what she's actually getting her clients drunk on is abominable things and filth. The woman promises wonderful things, just as God does. She mimics the promises God makes to us of delight and fulfillment. But all the woman can actually deliver is bitterness and decay. Drink her cup, and that's what you get. We've seen before in Revelation saying that someone has a particular name on their forehead. That's a way of talking about their true character, what they're really about. We've seen that those who follow the Lamb have his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Those who follow the beast have his name. And here the prostitute has the name Babylon the Great. In other words, her character is the character of that ancient city. Babylon was a city that didn't focus so much on crushing its enemies. It focused more on seducing them, to love its culture, 
and its gods and its abundance. That's how Babylon tended to deal with the lands it conquered. Why go to the trouble of trying to wipe out your enemies when you can take their future leaders, promising young men, and teach them not to fear you but to admire you? So you give them the best food and wine, the best training and education. You integrate them into your ways of thinking and living. Then you don't need to fight them. You've got them on your side. Sometime read the start of the book of Daniel. That's the approach Babylon took to him and his friends. It didn't succeed with Daniel, but it worked on plenty of others. By the time John sees this vision, Babylon, the city, and the empire has long gone. But the name fits this great prostitute perfectly. She has the character of that seductive city. And she's the mother of every culture and society that conquers people by making them desire her. But remember who this woman's partner is. It's the beast who works to destroy God's people. And even as the woman is inviting clients to come to her for a good time, her partner, the beast, is crushing those who resist. John says in verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So this woman's true nature is seen in the contents of her cup. It's full of abominable things and filth. And her true nature is seen in the company she keeps. She rides on the back of the destroying beast. And it's after seeing all this that John says in verse 6, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And we saw earlier, that could be translated, I was awestruck, or I marveled. So there is ambiguity here. Is John saying that he's afraid? Is he thinking, how can the church survive the work of this marriage from hell? The beast and his woman. Is that what John's feeling? Or does he marvel in a different way? Does he look at this woman and think, actually, she's kind of captivating. I realize she's working with a beast, and I know the stuff in her cup is vile, but I don't know, she looks good. Which is it? Is he drawn to the woman? Or is he afraid of her power? I think in the context, John feels a bit of both. Certainly he's not under any illusions about her true character. He knows she has poison in her cup. And he knows she's the beast's woman. But remember where John is. He's in the wilderness. The place of temptation. And in a moment, John is going to be rebuked by the angel. Why are you awestruck? 
It's the equivalent of saying, stop staring, John. You're embarrassing yourself. Maybe we think, no, that couldn't be it. Knowing all that John knows, he'd never be drawn to her. Really? Is that how it works for us? Don't we know all about the hollowness of this world and its promises? Don't we know what a hangover we get when we drink this world's wine? Don't we know that sin can never satisfy us? And aren't we attracted to it just the same? Don't we catch ourselves staring sometimes? Enticed by the same old stuff? Whether it's sexual temptation or wealth or high position. Satan isn't stupid. He knows people don't chase after unattractive things. So he makes sin fantastically attractive. Even as Satan is smashing and destroying through the beast, he's tempting and enticing through the woman who rides the beast. He hopes to either terrify or tempt the church into submission. So he fixed up this marriage made in hell. In John's day, this marriage was at work in the Roman Empire. The empire that could persecute Christians on the one hand and attract them on the other. So, for example, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, we have Paul writing the letter from prison. And as he writes, he speaks about the evil attacks of the enemy. As he writes, he's preparing for his own execution at the hands of Rome. And at the same time, he says his fellow worker Demas has just deserted him. Why? Because Demas loved this world. Isn't that what it means for the woman to ride the beast? Paul is feeling the evil attacks of the beast while Demas is running off to chase the woman. Even when we look back at Rome today, it's amazing how sophisticated a society it was. It's so impressive with his architecture and economy and politics. How much more attractive must it have been to people living in the middle of it? Could there ever be anything better than Rome? Could anything ever surpass Rome? One writer says, first century Christians might have wondered How can Rome be so bad when she looks so good? That's the temptation of the woman. Or, how could Rome ever fall when she looks so strong? That's the terror of the beast. 
And today, don't we experience that same double effect? We feel the fear of standing up and being counted as Christians, don't we? And at the very same time, we feel the attraction of all the God substitutes around us. We know the woman who rides the beast. So how do we overcome both the terror and the temptation? Well, Revelation gives us the same answer it's been giving us all along. We have to look forward. That's what the angel helps John to do. We have to see how things end up for the terrifying beast. And maybe it's doubly important to see how things end up for the great prostitute. It doesn't seem enough to be told her cup is full of filth. John knew that. He'd seen it. And he was still awestruck by the sight of the woman. And so, we also have to see how things end up for her. And having been shown the beast and his woman, now John sees the mystery of their destruction. Verse 7. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The angel is going to show John the future of both the woman and the beast. But why is it called a mystery? It's a mystery simply because it's contrary to how things look in the present. Things appear to be the norm. As if nothing could ever replace them or surpass them. That's how Rome must have looked. That's how the things that terrify and tempt us are always going to look. They seem invincible and they seem irreplaceable. It's a mystery to us when we look at them how they could ever fail or fall. But they will. First, the angel explains that the beast will be destroyed by the lamb. Most of what we find in verses 8 to 14 is material we've looked at in detail before. It's recapping what we saw in chapter 13. But we can remind ourselves of it briefly. Verse 8 says, The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss to go and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. The point is that the beast keeps coming back. He doesn't show himself in just one ruler or empire, but in many, all through history. You'll notice that twice in verse 8, the beast is referred to as the one who was, now is not, and yet will come. We've seen before how Satan and his representatives try to mimic God. And throughout Revelation, God is referred to as the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. 
The beast tries to match God's constant presence. But he can't quite manage it. The best he can do is to keep popping up again. Once one evil empire falls, another soon rises. And so, verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was now is, and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The beast has seven heads and ten horns. And here we're told the significance of the heads. They represent regimes throughout history. When one falls, another comes along. Verse 9 says the heads are hills or mountains, which verse 10 says are kings. In other words, heads, mountains, and kings are all different ways of describing the same thing. Mountains symbolize strength. So these are powerful kings who embody the rule of the beast. They are his heads. And the number seven tells us we're making a mistake if we ask which particular regimes are in mind here. The number seven is used throughout the Bible to refer to completeness. And so when we read that five kings have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come, we know the point is not that when John wrote this, there was only one evil empire to come. If that was the case, it would already have come and been defeated and we'd be in the new heaven and earth already. No, the number seven refers to all evil empires, the complete list of them. So then, telling us five have already fallen is a way of saying we're not far from the end. We don't know when the end is going to come, but we're closer to the end of history than we are to the start of it. Much closer. Well, what does it mean to say the beast is an eighth king? I take that to mean that although the beast is seen in the full list of evil earthly rulers, although he is at work through all of them, he's not exclusively tied to any one of them. He keeps going even as each one of them falls in history. He's an eighth figure. When one of the seven falls, it doesn't mean the end for him. And yet, when the last of history's evil empires finally falls, then the beast himself will go to destruction. He is not able to match the Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. If that's what the seven heads are about, what about the ten horns of the beast? 
Well, last week, when the final outpouring of God's wrath was described, we were told the kings of the whole world would join in a last attempt to destroy God and his people, Armageddon. That final gathering of forces seems to be what verse 12 is describing. So if the seven heads of the beast represent evil empires throughout history, the ten horns of the beast seem to represent one last brief squeeze on the worldwide church. Verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful warriors. In this book, we've seen the persecution of the church in history represented as lasting three and a half years. That came up a few times. So to say this final attack on the church lasts for one hour, that indicates it's very brief in the grand scheme of things. Each time this last battle is described, And it is described a few times in these final chapters. Each time the picture is consistent. It will be worldwide. It will be short. And the lamb will win. The beast in whatever human or political form he appears will be destroyed by the lamb. And the Lamb's called, chosen, and faithful followers will share in his victory. You and I need to keep that final outcome in mind when we feel terrified of the beast today. Whether that terror comes from watching the news about other parts of the world, or whether it comes from threats to our career because of some kind of political correctness. When someone else's liberty not to be offended is given priority over our liberty to obey God's word. In those moments, we have to remember who wins in the end. And then choose to stick with the lamb. What about the beast's woman? What do we need to know about her future? In verse 16, the angel tells John, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hit the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The woman will be destroyed by the beast. 
What does that mean? It means the prostitute was only being used by the beast. When her usefulness has gone, the beast will devour her. And this happens just before the beast wages war on the lamb and is finally destroyed himself. He destroys the woman first. And remember, we're not talking about a human lady here. The great prostitute represents this world's wealth and security. And man-made religion and thrills. Every idol and false savior this world produces. All the things it tells us we can rely on for security. Banks, economic systems. As the beast gathers its forces to attack the lamb, all those things will be sacrificed. They'll disintegrate. All the stuff that seemed to be so reliable and secure and fulfilling. As we read this, the point to take away is not that you and I should opt out of day-to-day life. No, the proper response to this is not to sell up and go and live in a cave somewhere. The proper response is to realize what's going to last forever and what's going to disappear in a moment. We use banks. We work for organizations. We vote and shop and use the internet. We study for exams. It's all part of life, normal life. And we are to do all of it for God's glory. But we have to live our lives with a clear sense of what's going to last forever and what's going to disappear in a moment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this world in its present form is passing away. And so we mustn't live as if it's going to last forever. When we do that, we're listening to the great prostitute. Not all the things she entices us with are bad in themselves. Some of what she offers us are good things made into God things. Work is a good thing. We were created to work. But in the hands of the prostitute, work gets turned into a God thing. Something that promises to fulfill us and give us security. And once that happens, work is taking God's place. Once we get drunk on work and all the benefits it promises us, we wander away from God. And notice in verse 17, it's God himself who's behind the tearing down of these God substitutes. The beast is not a law unto himself. When he turns on the woman, he's doing what he wants to do, but he's accomplishing God's purpose too. God's purpose that all of God's rivals be removed. And God himself is seen to be all in all.
As far as the Bible is concerned, you and I live in the wilderness. The promised land is still in front of us. God is with us in the wilderness. He supplies all that we need. So it's not a place for us to dread or try to escape from. We can enjoy God's presence here in wonderful ways. But we have to realize the wilderness is also a place of temptation. Serious temptation. And so we have to hear what the Bible says about the end. We have to distinguish between what's going to last forever and what's going to disappear in a moment. And then every day, we have to choose to live for what lasts forever. Our last two songs show us how we overcome both terror and temptation. We look to and we lean on the one who's always at our side. So let's sing, O Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. And then more than conquerors.